Join Anthony Esselin, John Wark Montgomery, Beverly Yonke, Mark Haltoff, Ryan Anderson, Todd Wilkin, and yours truly for the Fall 2018 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, Friday, November 9th and Saturday, November 10th in Dallas, Texas. To learn more, register at issuesetc.org. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, August 22nd, 2018. Light episode today. For tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down. Stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up God's Word, to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles, and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, we're how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine that's put forward for consumption by the average evangelical, far from biblical, far from what God's Word says, it's just generally a mess out there. Now, we're working our way through the book of Exodus, and uh, we'll be heading back to Kongsvinger Lutheran Church, Oslo, Minnesota, where I am the pastor, and we're going to be listening to a message I delivered in a Sunday school titled, unilateral or bilateral covenant, kind of an important thing uh, to note here. And I'm, I'm off on some kind of bunny trails is the best way I can describe it in this installment of uh, our teaching. So uh, let's get to it. Here we go. But, uh, let's pray and we will get started. Eternal God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, grant us your Holy Spirit who writes the preached word into our hearts so that we may receive and believe it and be gladly comforted by it in eternity. Glorify your word in our hearts. Make it so bright and warm that we may find pleasure in it, and through your inspiration think what is right. By your power, fulfill the word for the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. All right, standard operating procedure. Were there any questions that popped up in your mind as a result of the sermon? No? All right, I would say that, that either it was too confusing and you guys didn't the light, or I was really crystal clear and somehow stuck the landing. You know, the, the work on the apparatus was a little 
theory, but that's okay. We're back in Exodus 23 today, Exodus 23. Verse 23, we'll pick up where we started last week and then keep moving forward. We were talking about idolatry and how God himself does not permit idolatry and does not consider worship of them through false gods to actually be worship. And that God's people are called to not be idolaters. This is all first commandments that will have no other gods performing. So Exodus 23, 23, when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and of course you always have to throw in the Valleyites and the Amorites, <laughs> and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, or serve them, or do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them, break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve Yahweh your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. Now note, this is a very important aspect in the Mosaic Covenant, is that the Mosaic Covenant is not a covenant of grace, it is a covenant of works. It is a bilateral, not a unilateral covenant. And so, God's blessings in the Mosaic Covenant are contingent. So God has promised to take sickness away. The contingency, though, is you have to obey me. And first commandment, first order of business, you worship other gods and serve them. I have no obligation to banish sickness. from. So God has made conditions. Prosperity, health, and other things like this are promised in the Mosaic Covenant. But it's not a covenant of grace, it's a covenant of works. So they have to keep their end of the bargain. And you're going to note then that as we work through the other details of the Exodus, in the broader sense, not just in the book of Exodus, but like when we get into Numbers, that the children of Israel in their wilderness wanderings, and you think of like the fall of Jericho once they get into the promised land. Fall of Jericho. The next battle was Ai, small place. The children of Israel lost the first battle of Ai. Why? Why did they lose? Do you remember this? <coughs> okay. Do a little bit of work here. Fast forward. We're in Joshua. And I think we're going to be in chapter 5. I'm doing this. Let's see, maybe six. It's a great story, by the way. The weirdest battle plan ever. And the archaeology of um, Jericho is um, one of those things that is uh, quite fascinating. It supports the biblical narrative. But Jericho, uh, not Jericho, Joshua chapter six. Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, none came in. Now this is, this is at the tail end of their wilderness one. So they've crossed the Jordan. They're now in the Promised Land. First town to go is Jericho. And there are certain things that they have to do in the first battle. So he says, See, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, 
and the priest shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, every one straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horn before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded, the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horn before Yahweh, went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout, then you shall shout. So he caused the Ark of Yahweh to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Day one. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of Yahweh, and seven priests buried the seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark of the Lord, walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. The armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of Yahweh while the trumpet blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once, and returned to the camp, so they did for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for Yahweh has given you the city. The city and all that is within it shall be devoted to Yahweh for destruction. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest, when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing of destruction and bring trouble upon it. So you know, the fall of Jericho, everything is devoted to destruction. Nobody gets no plunder. It's terrible grammar, but you get a point. Everything, you don't get to keep nothing. Everything devoted to destruction. And I would argue that based upon what we see here, and considering the timeline, this is now the children of Israel triumphantly going into the Promised Land, that the fall of Jericho is in type and shadow a picture of Jesus' return. This is a picture of the angels of God encircling the globe and blowing their trumpets. You know, fast forward to the last day, that Christ will descend with the shadow of the archangel with the trumps, with the trumpets, right? So what we're seeing here in type and shadow is like a human reenactment or dress rehearsal for the day of judgment. And on that day, the whole earth is destroyed. And so you're going to note that there's the circling language. They're circling the city. Just like the planet itself is a big circle, a ball in space. So this is a type of shadow of what it looks like on the day of destruction. And the only people who survive, the only people who survive then, 
are Rahab and her family. She has a scarlet cord hanging out of her apartment, which is built into the wall. She is a prostitute. And her and her family, they survive. And, you know, and because they gave the spies, you know, they welcomed them into their house. So think of it this way. When a pastor, a preacher, or in the ancient world, the apostles were sent out, they were like the spies sent out to spy the promised land. And when somebody receives them, and listens to them, and protects them, and hears them, and believes in the one God that they are bringing tidings from, that's like, you know, it's like what Rahab did with the spies. You, you kind of get the picture of this. There's a connection then between the spies and the preachers of the gospel today. So, you, you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, so everything's got to go. Lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction. But all the silver, the gold, every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to Yahweh. They shall go into the treasury of Yahweh. City number one, everything belongs to God. So the people shouted, the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout. The wall fell down flat, so the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. And they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house, bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her, as you swore to her. I love this picture, always worth pointing out. When you read the genealogies of Christ in the New Testament and the Gospels, guess whose name shows up in that list? Rahab the prostitute. Isn't that interesting? Rahab the prostitute shows up. She was the mother of Boaz. And Boaz is the man who married Ruth. So keep that in mind. So a good way to think of it then then is, is that remember we're following the scarlet thread, the genealogy of Christ through the Old Testament. A good way to think about it is, is with the fall of Jericho, the prostitute becomes the bride of Christ. She marries the man who is the direct descendant of Jesus Christ. She marries into the lineage. She marries the forerunner of the Messiah himself. So it's, it's a beautiful picture of type and shadow. We learn all of this through the genealogy as well as the story of Ruth and Boaz. So go to the prostitute's house, bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. And so the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. They burned the city with fire, everything in it, only the silver and the gold and the vessels and the bronze of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute in the father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua, stayed alive. And she lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them that time, saying, Cursed before Yahweh be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay his foundation. At the cost of his youngest shall he shall set up its gates. And this is fulfilled later in the Old Testament, by the way. Somebody does decide to rebuild Jericho. And it does cost them these things. So Yahweh was with Joshua. His fame was, with him, was in all the land. I mean, it just sounds like a total route, total victory, the end. 
moving on get to the next town. See, there's a but. And what comes in chapter 7? But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Now, whoa, 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 hang on a second. Who's responsible? Who did this? Achan. Achan. Achan did it. Who's being punished for his sin? The whole, the whole, the whole people. So this is what you kind of have to get about sin, is that no sin is committed by anybody in a vacuum. Achan is the only fellow out of all of the people of Israel, one guy decided that he was going to sin, and so all of the people of Israel are seen by God as having broken the covenant. Now this starts to create a magnitudinal factor when it comes to obedience. And remember, the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant is a covenant of works. And so as we're reading in Exodus about God saying, if you obey my voice, he's not talking about you as an individual, or you as an individual. He's talking about you as a people, and if anybody among you as the people breaks this covenant, Despite the fact that it's one individual, everybody will be seen as being disobedient to the Lord. Such is the nature, because God didn't make it with individuals. This covenant is not made with individuals. This covenant is made with a group of people. The people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. So at any time, could we say the children of Israel really, truly, perfectly obeyed all of the stipulations of this covenant? Nope. And that was not why it was given. It was given for a specific purpose. Now, I mention all of that for a reason. Because if you ever watch Trinity Broadcasting Network, you look at somebody like a Benny Hinn or a Kenneth Copeland, they will invoke passages of scripture like we were reading in Exodus 23 where it talks about how if you obey my voice then I will banish sickness and so the issue here oops, hang on a second here I didn't work out right I want ESV and I want you to be my Hebrew thank you and now it's smaller than all the way out okay let's try that again so so he says I will take sickness away from among you, none shall miscarry or be barren, I will fulfill the number of your days. So all of these promises, what they do, this is how the prosperity gospel works, and it's a false gospel. They say to you, God promises in Exodus, He promises in the book of Deuteronomy, He's going to take sickness away from you. He's going to make you prosperous. He's going to make your crops multiply. There will be no blight or insects or diseases or mold or mildew, and you'll fill out your days. See, this is what God wills for you. And they leave out all of the fine print. Number one, these promises were not made to you and I. These are promises that were made to the people of Israel, and they weren't promises. 
They were God's part of a bilateral covenant that he promised to do his part if they did their part. And their part required them to obey. And they don't. And so as you look at the history of the people of Israel, you get into the book of Judges now. After the conquering of Canaan by the Israelites in the book of Joshua, you get into the book of Judges, and it has this constant refrain. It's like every story kind of launches into a cycle that you keep hearing over and over and over again. All the way through, not just in Judges, but all the way through 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. The people of Israel did what was right, wrong in the sight of the Lord. They worshipped the Baals. They sacrificed their children to Molech. They, they worshipped the starry host. They, they did this. They broke covenant. So God sold them into slavery to Midian. He sold them into slavery to the Hittites. And then God raises up a judge. And the judge is given the assignment of releasing them from slavery, becoming the hero who releases them from bondage. He judges Israel for a short amount of time. And then the whole cycle starts again. And in the case of the monarchs of the kingdom of Israel, David's your high watermark, and it just keeps tumbling down from there. And in the midst of their moral spiraling down, kind of culminating then in the Babylonian captivity, Nebuchadnezzar conquering Israel and taking a remnant, only 10% of them lived through God's judgment into captivity in Babylon. All during the spiral, God is sending prophets. Prophets like Isaiah, prophets like Micah and Amos, all of the Old Testament prophets, the major and the minor, these are the guys God has sent to make an appeal. Repent! God will forgive you. Turn away from these worthless idols. These idols are nothing. This is their constant refrain. They're in a sense kind of like God's spokesman calling them to back into the covenant, calling them back to be forgiven, telling them of the mercy and grace of God, and what do they do? No. We want our idols. And God says, finally, enough is enough. And the last in that group, then, is Jeremiah, who wrote Jeremiah and Lamentations. And Jeremiah is the guy who was given the unenviable task of preaching the word of God, and God told him ahead of time at his commissioning as a prophet that he would preach the word and it would result not in their repentance but the further hardening of their hearts. This is why we call him the weeping prophet. He was sent out to preach the word and told that that word would not result in revival, it would result in God's judgment. And on Jeremiah's watch, Nebuchadnezzar sacks Jerusalem. Takes the people. We don't even know how he died. We honestly do not know what happened to Jeremiah. Some people say he, after the fall of Jerusalem, he survived, and then he made it to Egypt. You know, there's something in the text that kind of hints at all that. But we don't know what happened to him ultimately at the end of it. We don't know. He just kind of disappears off the pages of history. We don't know how he perished. So you kind of see the pattern. So, Mosaic Covenant, Bilateral Covenant, and then do, we'll do a little bit of cross-reference work here in the book of Galatians, which is vital. Galatians chapter 3, Paul writing to the churches in Galatia, 
spends chapter 3 and 4 then explaining why the Mosaic Covenant, why the law, why the Torah, what was the purpose that it was given. You see, because the Judaizers in the time of the Apostle Paul, they had come back into the churches that Paul had planted and told the people in the churches, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. You have to keep Torah. You've got to keep the commandments of the Mosaic Covenant. And watch what Paul does here. We'll start in chapter 3 because we want to grab our context. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? What do you think the answer to the question is? By hearing with faith. So are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? And you're going to note here that the Apostle Paul makes it clear when in his epistles he's talking about doing things by the Spirit. That is a synonymous phrase with believing by faith. To do things by the Spirit is to believe by faith. Those are two synonymous phrases. And it doesn't mean that, that, that you're supposed to babble incoherently like the so-called charismatics do. That's not what it talks about here. So are you, have, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? Indeed, it was in vain. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Which is it? The second, by hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted, or you can say credited to him as righteousness. So know then it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify, now a big word there, dikaiao, uh, justify means to declare righteous. That's that, that phrase that you come back to, to. It's the judge putting the gavel down and saying, not guilty. That's what justify means. God would justify the Gentiles by faith. He preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Now, important thing here. It doesn't say all who obey the Ten Commandments are under a curse. That's not what it says. It says all who rely on works of the law. Rely is to say... I'm saved by being a good boy. I'm saved by being a good girl. I'm saved by following the rules. You're relying on works of the law for your salvation. And everybody who is relying on works of the law, they're under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and continually do them. The Ten Commandments are not part of the checklist that you can say, okay, I've done it, now I've earned my salvation. All who rely on them have to keep doing them, and keep doing them, and keep doing them. They're under a curse. There's no freedom there. Now it is evident. No one is justified before God by the law. Does it get any clearer than that? No one is justified before God by the law. 
Abraham wasn't. David wasn't. Moses wasn't. Nobody is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. The law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith, not by works. So to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, and you can say contract here, uh, diatheke could be a contract. Contract and covenant are kind of the same idea. Even with a man-made contract, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. In other words, once you have the contract signed and the ink is dry, you can't go back and change it. Okay, That's the idea. So, to give a human example, even with a man-made contract, no one can annul it or add to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises, they were made to Abraham and to his offspring, singular, Zerah, It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, and that offspring, by the way, is Christ. So this is what I mean. The law, the Mosaic covenant, which came 430 years after Abraham, does not annul a covenant that was previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law... It no longer comes by the promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. You see how the, how the argument is developing and unfolding. All who rely on works of the law under a curse. The, the law which was given 430 years after the promises were made to Abraham and salvation was promised to Abraham as a gift by grace, through faith, in the Abrahamic covenant, which was not a bilateral covenant, it was a unilateral, God promising everything. Abraham was sound asleep while God walked between the, brook, the, the split pieces of the animals in that covenant. God is the one making the promises. And so that covenant cannot be overthrown by the Mosaic covenant. So this is why we as Christians, because Paul teaches us to do this here in Galatians as well as Romans, The covenant that we look to as the precursor to the new covenant that we are in is the Abrahamic covenant. And that covenant is a covenant of grace purely as a gift based on the promises of God. And Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, which means Abraham was saved by grace through faith. David was saved by grace through faith. Moses was saved by grace through faith. Joshua, the same. Then you get to all of the good kings of Israel, Hezekiah and others. They were saved by grace through faith. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, saved by grace through faith because the Mosaic Covenant could not overturn the Abrahamic Covenant. Which then begs the question, okay, God, we get it. The Abrahamic Covenant cannot be added to or taken away from and salvation is given as a promise, as a gift by you in the Abrahamic Covenant. So why do you give the Mosaic Covenant? What's the purpose of that thing? Because nobody was keeping it, and it seemed like quite a burden to those who were under it or who were in it. Okay? 
That's the question that's kind of before us. We'll get to that in a second. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you could subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back, the balance of today's lesson, unilateral or bilateral covenant. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough! Of the sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. I do wish these planes would give us passengers more legroom. Hey, let me help you with your luggage. Oh, thank you so much. What in the world do you have in these bags? Bricks. Bricks? I'm a door-to-door brick salesperson. I'm not even going to ask. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fastened seatbelt sign. If you have not already done so, please stow your carry-on luggage underneath the seat in front of you or in an overhead bin. Please take your seat and fasten your seatbelts and make sure your seat back and tray tables are in their full upright and locked positions. Thank you. Thank you, Brittany. In case y'all don't know me, I'm Mark Driscoll, and I'm going to be your pilot for today. Oh, dear. He looks more like a terrorist, if you ask me. If any of you passengers feel at any time that you could pilot this plane better than me, then you'll be swiftly thrown under the bus. Uh, I mean plane. As you may have noticed, there are also no parachutes on this flight, which means, should you be thrown off the plane, that your landing will be unpleasant. We thank you for flying Mars Hill Air with us today. I guess it's time to take off, then. Well, let's just hope our flight to Boston will be nice and easy. said before, please trust your pilot or you'll be forcibly removed from the plane. 
Who on earth would want to go to New Jersey anyway? That's it. God, please escort this man to the back of the plane for violent ejection. Hey, I have my rights. You can't do this to people. Oh, but I can. I can't believe that just happened. There's something seriously wrong with all of this. And this is your captain speaking. Do not be alarmed. You are now free to move about the cabin and do as you please. Just whatever you do, don't question my actions or authority. So you're a brick salesperson, huh? Yep. But why on earth would you want to talk about something like that in a time like... Oh, yeah. I'm thinking it's time that Mr. High and Mighty got relieved of his duties. It is now time for you all to buckle your seatbelts and hold on tight because we're about to start doing barrel rolls. He's going to do what? <laughs> Remember to always trust your pilots. I know what I'm doing. I do believe the ground is getting awfully close. And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. <laughs> to err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. All right, we're back. 
Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor never works his way through the Bible in depth. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew, and rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster, $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, Click on the Donate button. If you'd like to support us via Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button. And if you'd like to support us a traditional way, you can do so by uh, making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here's the balance of today's lesson titled Unilateral or Bilateral Covenant. Here we go. So if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise. God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Verse 19, so why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring, that's Jesus, should come to whom the promise had been made. It was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So is the law then contrary to the promises of God? No, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. Another great text giving us the promises regarding our baptisms. So there is neither Jew or Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You're all one in Christ. And there's that one theme again that we heard in our epistle text today uh, regarding the fact that we are a one body. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and you are heirs according to promise. Now that's quite the statement. When we think of Abraham's offspring today, we think of those who are genetically Jewish. No. Being a genetic Jew does not give you an in with God. You are Abraham's offspring, children according to the promise, if you believe in the one whom Christ, whom the Father has sent. That's Christ. 
You are saved by grace through faith. And you've been grafted into Israel. You guys are the ones who are Abraham's offspring. Chapter 4 makes the point a little bit finer. So I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Now this is where it gets interesting. The picture, the picture changes a little bit to that of a guardian. And we've seen the movies or we've heard the stories. You know, a story of you know, a kingdom where the king and the queen are tragically killed or they die. And the heir to the throne is only five years old. And of course, all kinds of intrigue and political machinations occur in a situation like that where the monarch is too young to reign. So what happens then to that young monarch? He's put under guardians. And so the, the way the stories always go, you know, he goes from being five years old to maybe 13. At 13, he's learning how to use his sword. And then something terrible happens, right? Some, somebody usurps and takes over the throne. And this kid has to flee for his life. And then the way the story always resolves, at least the fairy tale story version of it, is that the rightful king finally returns. He's no longer under the guardians. He is old enough and mature enough and wise enough and has suffered enough to be a good monarch. And he defeats the bad guy, comes back to the throne, and they live happily ever after. Right? So you're going to note then that the way this is talking is that all of humanity, specifically the Jews, the Torah, the Mosaic Covenant, was the guardian. It was the tutor. And the way it describes this tutor is kind of like a very, very, very strict straight, unbending, unyielding, never smiling school teacher who will wrap your knuckles with a, with a ruler or a yardstick if you step out of line. Teacher, um, why do we whap? Stop asking stupid questions. Ah! Right? <laughs> That's how the Torah is described. So uh, as long as the heir is a child, he's no different from a slave, though. He is the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by the, his father. So in the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, a little bit of a note here. Tell me what's the cross-reference in your Bible to the tail end of verse 3 of chapter 4. It's enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Remember, Scripture interprets Scripture. What's the cross-reference? Anyone have a cross-reference on that? Let's see. Elementary principles of the world. Um, all right, let me see if I can find it. Hang on. I think it's going to be in Colossians. Here it is, Colossians 2.20. So watch how Scripture interprets Scripture. And this is an important thing you have to pay attention when reading Paul's epistles is that Paul sometimes will throw a phrase out and you sit there and go, what does that mean? What is the elemental principles of the world that he's referring to? And thankfully he tells us in Colossians 2.20. So if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, there it is again, same phrase, different letter, and this will help shed some light. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, 
referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So the elemental principles of the world kind of goes like this, if you were using a modern example from my own life. I talked about it this morning in the sermon. When I was in a different denomination, I was growing up, I was told Christians do not dance. Christians do not smoke. Christians do not chew. Christians do not drink. Christians do not play cards. Christians do not go to movies rated higher than G. That list is a list that fits into the category of the elemental principles of the world. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Do you think for a second that I was more like Jesus when I wasn't playing cards on a Friday or Saturday with my friends? Yes or no? No. Do you think telling me that I cannot dance as a teenager made me closer to Jesus and helped me control the sinful passions that I have because of my sinful nature? No, not at all. In fact, I can tell you this, the school that I went to was a Christian school. We were not allowed to have a prom. We had a junior-senior banquet. And they would usually pick some really nice hotel banquet hall. One year they had it in Newport Beach. When I was a junior in high school, I wasn't able to go because I got the chicken pox the week before. Bummer. (laughs) Which is no fun. But so senior year, Barb and I go to the junior-senior banquet. It's in Newport Beach, California. It's at a beautiful facility. And everybody there is circulating a flyer. Did you see this? Did you see that? Did you see that? As soon as this thing is over, there's a place up in, you know, about 15 miles from here. Somebody's rented a warehouse. We're going to have a dance. And we went and we danced. And you know what? The whole time I was dancing, I felt like I was going to the school and its rules. That's not exactly holy, is it? You see, and that's the thing. So many people who call themselves Christians, they try to boil Christianity down to, here's the list of things we don't do, rather than the list of things we believe. And because we believe, then that the things that we do. Sanctification is not merely an, an exam, a, a matter of, I don't do these things. It's me actively loving and serving my neighbor in good works, caring for their needs. And as we read in, you know, in our epistle text today, patience, kindness, eager to maintain the bond of peace and unity, bearing with one another. Believe me, bearing with you all is very difficult. I'm, I'm joking. But that's the idea. We all bear with each other. Because we're all sinners and we're all weak. 
We all step on each other's toes. If we were dance partners, we'd have to wear steel-toed shoes because of how poorly we dance and are constantly stomping on each other. Such is the nature of being a Christian here. So then, coming back to our text now, we, now we know what Paul's talking about, the elemental spirit, uh, principles of the world. So in the same manner, verse 3 of Galatians 4, in the same manner, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elemental principles of the world. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem, and there's that slaving term, to redeem is to purchase somebody out of slavery, those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, you are a son. And if you are a son, then you are an heir through God. And you're going to note then, God sent his son to redeem us, to adopt us, and now we've been written into the will, we have an inheritance, we're part of the family, we are sons and daughters of God and heirs through him, and this is not something we've earned, it's given as a gift. So formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days, months, seasons, years. Think of the Passover. Think of the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Weeks, the Shabbat. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brother, so I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Catch that. Look at that. Paul came to them in weakness with some kind of a physical bodily ailment. And though my condition was a trial to you, in fact, it was such a terrible bodily ailment that it was difficult for them to care for him, um, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So what then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you, if possible, that you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? <laughs> the answer to that is, it sure does feel like that at times, right? So they make much of you, the Judaizers, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. So my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. So tell me, you who desire to be under the Torah, do you not listen to the Torah? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through a promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. 
Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, by the way. Galatians tells us where Mount Sinai is. It's not in Egypt. It's in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So you then note here, Mosaic covenant was never given for salvation. It was given to be a tutor. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. To keep people under it in slavery until the seed would arrive, and that seed is Jesus. And now that he has arrived, the promises of faith have been revealed and given, and we are not under the Mosaic covenant. Period. This is why we do not keep the Passover. This is why I don't have to travel to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost or have to camp out in the wilderness of Judea every summer for the Feast of Booths. This is why I can work on a Saturday. You see the idea here? We're not under the Mosaic Covenant. And it was never a covenant given for salvation. It had a purpose. And that purpose never was to to overthrow the promises given to Abraham. So then coming back to our Old Testament text... So you shall serve Yahweh your God. He will bless your bread and your water. I will take sickness away from among you. And this is again part of the bilateral Mosaic covenant. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. I will make all of your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you, and you shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me, for if you serve their gods, I will surely be a snare to you. Next chapter. So then he and Moses said to Moses, Come up to Yahweh, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of Yahweh and all the rules. And the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that Yahweh has spoken we will do. How long did that last? I mean, it didn't last very long. Moses goes up on the mount. Forty days later, they're worshiping a golden calf. 
Yeah. So as all of so after the battle of Jericho, so as all the Israelites were punished for the sins of one man. Yeah. All all of Israel was saved through the righteous work of one man. Exactly. And what's interesting, though, we didn't do the resolve on the story of Achan. Um, when Achan is punished for his sin and dies, then the curse is lifted, and God is now helping the people of Israel again. So Achan, in some weird way, becomes a stand-in for Christ, and we see then the collective nature of sin. Isn't it funny that so many people say, you, know, you say to somebody, what you're doing is wrong. They say, it's not hurting anybody else. not hurting anybody else. Balad na. That's not how you pronounce it, I know, but... <laughs> Your sin impacts other people, even if nobody else knows what your sin is. There is not only an individual aspect to the consequences of sin, there's a collective. Your sin impacts other people in ways you cannot even begin to imagine. Nobody sins in a vacuum. Our sins hurt each other, even if you don't even know what the other person's sins are. And you don't need to know. That's the, that's the nature of sin. So Moses came and told the people all the words of Yahweh, now all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of Yahweh. He rose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Now this is loads of fun. You remember in Galatians, where did Galatians say Mount Sinai was? Arabia. Arabia. Okay. I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent here and see if I can do this properly in the small amount of time that I have allotted for our thing here. And I have something, and you can pass this around and share it. I've showed you this before, and I will continue to make reference to it because I'm absolutely convinced that the Bible's right, that, Saudi, that Mount Sinai is in Saudi Arabia. And the place that, we, that I point to, and others have pointed me to, um, for the Mount Sinai that is in Saudi Arabia, Jabal Allah's, there's a very fascinating feature of that particular place, and that is that at the base of that mountain, we have an animal chute that leads to an altar, and that altar, let me find this, uh, maps.google.com, and that altar at the base of it, there literally is, no joke, 12 pillars at the base, at that site. Now, I'm going to do this this way. I have to do this this way. All right. Okay. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pass this around. And this is it in three dimensions, and you can take a look around. I'll start over here. And I'll show you what you're looking at, but I want you to see it in 3D. If you go to maps.google.com and type in Moses' altar... Now look towards the kitchen and you can see the you can see the altar bases. 
Give me a second because the internet is really slow out here. Yeah. Okay, I'll show you where that's located, but I want you to see it in three dimensions because I think it's very fascinating. And so what we're going to do, we're going to go to Moses' altar. Maps.google.com. You have to look towards the kitchen. And you can, so the animal chute, you notice there's two lanes going up and then it goes up to an altar. And then at the beginning of the animal chute, oh, somewhere near the kitchen, you can see the, the, the 12 pillars that were set up. And it's very fascinating that people have gotten into, um, oh boy, it's not looking, letting me look for it there. So let me do it this way. Did they change me? Google Maps on me? All right. So let me show you what we're looking at here. The crossing of the Red Sea, this is the Red Sea right here, and it's going to take me a minute to kind of get this to come into focus because it's loading at, you know, the speed of smell. The crossing of the Red Sea occurs right here at a place called Wasit. And the crossing, so this is the Egyptian side, this is the side on Saudi Arabia. And so the crossing of the Red Sea occurs here. The children of Israel come down to the springs of Elim and then follow a wilderness trail, which takes them to this area right here. And that area right there is where the split rock of Horeb is. And then Mount Sinai is where Jabal Allah's is. And so what we'll do, we'll zoom in a little bit here. I'm going to switch this over to satellite view because I want to, I actually want to see the satellite in position on it. And you can tell where Mount Sinai is because the top of the mountain is burnt. Okay, so I'm going to zoom in on this feature over here. And you're going to note the top of Mount Sinai in Saudi Arabia. This is totally burnt. This is not a volcanic mountain. This mountain is granite. It's an interesting pink granite. But the top of it is totally charred. Very fascinating feature of it. Elijah's cave, which is one of the features that you would expect, is actually on this little outcropping right here. And where Elijah heard, you know, heard the, 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 the low whisper. And there's people who've actually in the past posted photographs of it. And those got taken down when, when Google changed their photographic service. And so we're waiting for people to put new pictures up of Elijah's cave, but it's over there. But so here is where the stone, where the, uh, you know, where the. You see over here? We can't see that little arrow thingy. Could you take your finger and point to it? Sure, sure. Absolutely. All right. So I'll come over this way. All right, so Moses' altar, this is where the golden calf altar was set up. And the, uh, the Saudi government knows that this is an important archaeological site, and they've actually built a fence keeping people from going up to, uh, you know, to the base of Mount Sinai. Here, this is the area where Elijah's cave is. It's exactly where we would expect it to be. And then the, the animal shoot altar that we hear about the sacrifices that are taking place with the stone pillars, this is up in this area right up in here. So when you're looking around and taking a look, 
you're at the base of Mount Sinai right here, and the 12 pillars are exactly where they should be, adjacent to an animal shoot altar. And let me see if I can pull this up now, see if this, my internet connection is going to let me do this a little bit easier. But I need to zoom in just a smidge so you can kind of see where the altar itself is. There's a little crook in it. Here it is. Okay, so. Got to get my bearings here. Okay, because this one's tricky. Okay, so what you guys are looking at is right here. The animal shoot starts down here. And the 12 pillars that you see towards the kitchen, those are down in here. And then the animal shoot leads up to a sacrificial altar right there. Did it close itself again? No. No? Okay, we're done. All right. So you, you kind of get an idea of what's going on here. So it, it's kind of a fascinating little feature, right? Were you guys able to see it okay? Yeah? All right. Now, let me see if I can pull it up here in, so that we can kind of take a look around just to... Um, I know you say that they closed this off. So oh, yeah, the Saudi government does not allow people up here. And so the people who've taken these photographs have jumped the fence and somehow got, not, not only gotten into Saudi Arabia, but gotten out, which is, that's crazy. It's getting out. Huh? Getting in, I'm sure, is just as easy as getting out. I think visiting there at all is a dicey proposition, and I do not recommend anybody try that. Now, let me show you this real quick. And there's a, there's a group of people who actually got into this portion, too. They also jumped the fence, which I think is very fascinating. Why is that doing that? Moses' altar. Yeah, give it a second to load. All right, we're almost out of time. I knew this was going to take a minute. Well, the Internet's too slow for me to kind of finish this out. Moses is all for Saudi Arabia. There we go. Okay. So let me show you what we were looking at in uh, using the Google Cardboard, and you'll see this. It takes a second to load. All right. This is what you guys were looking at inside of this, and it's coming into focus now. Very slow. There we go. So you're going to note this guy here. So this is heading towards the back into the valley. And then behind it, going in this direction for me, is, is, is going up Mount Sinai. And so you're going to note the 12 pillar bases right here, exactly where they should be. This then is the animal chute that, you know, they led these sacrificial animals up through this chute. A little bit of a bend in it and then up to the altar, which is up here, and it takes a minute for it to load, and you can kind of see what the cell is. Mount Sinai in Saudi Arabia, this is the site. It's, so if you ever go on a tour of the Holy Land and they want to take you to Mount Sinai, and it's in Egypt, you, you, that, ain't, that ain't Mount Sinai. None of the features of that mountain actually fit anything that's in the scriptures. This is the site. So discovered archaeology are the people who kind of you know, they, they jumped the fence and took this panoramic photo so that we can see it. So then, the, so the animal shoot then leads up to this altar up here, 
where they were slaughtered. And you can see the guy taking the photo up here. They, they took extensive photos of this site, uh, I think illegally, to be honest with you. Um, this, by the way, um, is the split rock of Horeb, which is very near to this, um, to this site. That's the, the rock that God split and then caused the water to come flowing out of it. It actually created a little mini lake in the process. And then talking about one of the things that's kind of a fascinating feature of, of the wilderness wanderings of Israel are the petroglyphs that they left. You'll note that this is a petroglyph of a sandal print. And these are all over Saudi Arabia. This is a particular way you can follow your way around the outer rims of, of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, and you can find these petroglyphs. Any, anyone have a guess as to why it would be a sandal print? Well, why? Yeah, exactly. And here's the reason why. God says, wherever you set your foot, I will give you that land. And so as part of the wilderness wanderings, and you find these throughout Saudi Arabia on a particular trail, that's the sandal prince of the Israelites. Saying, wherever God causes my foot to, to stand, he's going to give me that land as an inheritance. So they're marking their territory. Yeah, they're marking their territory. Also, yeah. Saudi Arabian government wants this all hush-hush. Yeah, they do. It gives Israel legitimacy in regards to claim to swaths of land. Uh -huh. So, anyway, that's the site. And next week we will pick up and read some of the details of then what happened at this site in Saudi Arabia. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.